0: Hello, this is Michael Albert, and I am the host of the podcast titled Revolution Z. This is our 136th episode, and it is titled When the Ship Comes In. It is a stand-in offering, I guess you could call it, as what I have scheduled for this week fell through. This is a slightly revised transcript of a testimony presentation I offered at the World Social Forum in Porto Alegre, Brazil, in 2002. The setup for these type sessions was that invited guests were to talk about their primary involvements, which is what I did, and my primary involvement two decades ago, and two decades before that as well, and another, has had much in common. But first, however, I have to ask, is this podcast, Revolution Z, worth having? That is, is it worth having a weekly podcast that addresses issues of vision, which is what we want? and of strategy, which is how we might get it. And two, if our podcast is worth it, then is Revolution Z focusing on vision and strategy sufficiently well, so that Revolution Z itself, in particular, is worth having? Finally, three, if the answer is yes, doesn't it follow that Revolution Z is worthy of some support? I hope you will now have answered, at least in your mind, with three yeses. If so, there are two straightforward ways to act on your conclusion. The first is a little bit crass. You can go to www.patreon.com slash revolutionz, and once there, you can sign up to help materially sustain the project with a donation. I hope you will do so. The second approach is uh, social and political. You can make Revolution Z known to others, whether you do it face-to-face or by making reference to it in writing that you send or otherwise deliver more widely, for example, via social media. Okay, now let's get on with this, our 136th episode of Revolution Z. Remember, it's a presentation to the 2002 World Social Forum. First, I want to thank the organizers of the WSF for having me here to give a personal testimony, and for conceiving and organizing this monumental event. I have been involved with gatherings of tens, hundreds, and even thousands of folks at a time, but this event here in Porto Alegre is truly extraordinary. We all owe the organizers our thanks and continuing support. And for me to be able to come here, meet so many wonderful people, learn from so many wonderful people, and even try to offer some useful comments to so many wonderful people is both humbling and inspiring. So thank you. When I was much younger, I was powerfully moved by the words of Bob Dylan's songs, which still inspire me greatly. One song that I liked in particular is called When the Ship Comes In. It is a beautiful embodiment of the idea of winning a new world, our ship coming in. More recently, I have grown to like the music of the Canadian activist poet Leonard Cohn, and particularly a song called Democracy is Coming to the USA. It, too, is about some of the implications of winning a new world. And so, from these inspirational poet-activists, I arrived at a title for this testimony, When the Ship Comes in, Democracy is Coming to the USA. I first became political in the struggle against the war in Vietnam. Very early in my awakening, I remember going to a beautiful old church for a draft card turn-in in downtown Boston. I think it was perhaps 1966. I was up in the balcony. Students and others walked up to the pulpit and turned in their military draft cards as an act of resistance. I applauded from the balcony with many others. When I was going home from the event, I had one of those moments that we all sometimes enjoy, a moment of clarification or insight. I realized that I had applauded people for doing something I could do, but something I wasn't doing, and without having any compelling reason for not doing it. Here was behavior I appreciated and that I had no persuasive reason to be avoiding, but yet which I wasn't engaging in. I decided to transcend that situation in the future. I decided never to applaud, as a spectator, what I could myself do and had no very good reason for not doing. If I admire some action, I told myself, and if I can do it, and if I have no good reason to not do it, in other words, if I have nothing morally better on my agenda, then I should do it. It was a simple realization, and thereafter, I became much more politically active. In organizing on my campus, not long after the church gathering, I remember repeatedly trying to elicit understanding and support for our anti-Vietnam War movement. And I remember repeatedly encountering a strange resistance. I would describe the motives and suffering of the war. And I would be asked in response, and what are you for? What goal would make war go away? Why do you think fighting against the war makes sense, given that war and all the associated horrors of our existence are inevitable? I thought the questions were absurd. They annoyed me. They seemed like avoidance, and I often answered harshly. We have to end the Vietnam War, I spoke, asserted, even hollered. Later there will be time for ending all war forever, for ending all the horrors of our existence. The fact that I and other anti-war organizers didn't have good answers for how all of society should be restructured to eliminate the causes of war and the causes of other pains as well was no excuse for not opposing the war, I felt. I was technically right about that, of course. But as an activist, I now believe I was strategically horribly wrong. Showing that potential supporters' feelings and doubts weren't warranted Or illogical was a second breast approach. It wasn't nearly as good as if I and others had been prepared and able to respond positively, to offer a visionary answer that would address people's doubts and lead forward, and would provide hope, that would give direction, and that would address reticent people on their own terms. Over thirty years have passed since then. I said in Porto Alegre, and I now add parenthetically, as of this podcast over 50 years have passed. If we were to create a stack of all the speeches and talks and conversations and books and essays about how capitalism hurts people that have been offered in those 30 years, and if we were to create another stack of all the speeches and talks and conversations and books and essays about an alternative to capitalism and how it could benefit people that have been offered in those 30 years, and now 50 years, the pile documenting misery would touch the sky. Perhaps it would even reach the moon. But the pile describing a superior option would barely leave the ground. The Vietnam War is over, but war still rages. And now, too, there is ecological collapse, knock, knock, knocking at our door. The question, what do we want, still exists. People ask it all the time. And yet, even after having given so much attention to what's wrong, and so little attention to what we want, we still continue to give this fair, urgent, and insightful question too little attention. I think that is a huge error. I think our collective allocation of energies and insights between these two priorities, addressing what is wrong in its origins and its dynamics on the one hand, and providing a vision of what we desire and its logic and its implications, on the other hand, needs to be overhauled. The former is still important, of course, but we need to do much more of the latter. But why does answering the query, what do we want, matter so much that we should allot much more time and energy to it? Imagine I was to deliver a brilliant, moving, compelling speech about the ravages of old age. I enumerate how old age limits our options, how it oppresses us, and how it finally kills us. I document the pain and the suffering accurately, and movingly. The facts are incontestable. The reality is undeniably final. After all, aging limits everyone. It kills virtually everyone. I finish this emotional and accurate portrayal of this scourge on all our lives, and I say, okay, now join me in a movement against horrible, oppressive, murderous aging. Obviously, no one joins me. In fact, everyone thinks I am crazy, People rightly realize that to form a movement against what is inevitable, to form a movement against aging, is literally insane. And people are aware, as well, that eloquent, accurate demonstrations of pain from aging have no bearing on their conclusion to ignore appeals to organize against aging. It is absurd to join a social movement against inevitable facts of life. Well, what we need to realize, certainly in the USA... I suspect in most places, and maybe even in every place, is that for many, 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 many millions of people who we need to communicate with, the speeches, talks, rallies, classes, and books that we offer about poverty and dignity, war, sexism, racism, and wage slavery, well, they all sound precisely like speeches against aging. They sound eloquent. They may induce tears and rage, but as to choosing our life path, for most people, they are beside the point. People feel there is no alternative to a world in which these oppressive conditions predominate. They feel that fighting injustices is like fighting aging. It is useless. It is a fool's errand. Even if we win gains, they will be quickly wiped out by inevitable pressures that slowly but surely, or even quite rapidly, reinstitute all the old rot. And so people feel that are piling up descriptions of the pains induced by capitalism, by business as usual, descriptions of the pains they most often know already from their own experience, is annoying whining, and certainly in no way constructive. The point is, unless people believe that something better is possible, explaining the harm of capitalism, of racism, of sexism, sounds to their ears like explaining the pain caused by aging. Our appeals are felt to be an annoying impediment to making the best of it. And people tell us so. Get a life, they say to us in the U.S., for example. Recently, and remember, that is when this presentation occurred about 20 years ago, a computer broke down in the Z offices, which is where I work, and also where I live. A fellow came to our place to do some repairs, a young white man who worked with a couple of friends in a very small computer repair business. We talked about the bombing of Afghanistan while we worked, and then for another couple of hours after he was finished. I argued that the motives of the U.S. response were to delegitimate international law, to maintain our credibility as a thug willing to destroy those who defy us, and to create a war on terrorism to justify redistributing wealth upward to the rich, even while using fear to bolster draconian repressive measures against the poor below. The fellow, with zero political involvement, had no trouble understanding all this, seeing and feeling the horror of bombing a country with everything short of nuclear weapons, even at the possible cost of millions of souls starved to death by the bombing destroying the harvest. But literally, with tears in his eyes, he said, Michael, you need to understand, me and people like me, we don't want to hear this. We don't want you to say this to us. We don't want you to make us face it over and over. And I said, rather like you wouldn't want me to detail the suffering of an earthquake. He said, exactly. It is inevitable. There is nothing I or anyone I know can do to change it. I need to protect my family, he said, and to improve their lives. What you want from me would waste my time. You are right about the facts, of course, but it is only painful to my ears. I can't affect it. No one can affect it. For this young computer repair person, and for millions upon millions like him, like for some of the students I was trying to reach 30 years ago, and I now add, I think perhaps now much more so, a powerful impediment to becoming politically active is doubt that any better outcomes can be attained or maintained. To build a really large movement, we therefore need vision. We need vision to combat cynicism and doubt. We need vision to combat the idea that there is no alternative. We need vision to provide hope that sustains commitment, even for ourselves. We need vision that conveys a positive and inspiring approach, rather than having a sound to people like we are whiners and naysayers, losers, unable to cope. And we need vision to know where we want to go, so that our efforts will advance our aspirations rather than lead only in circles, or even worse, lead toward ends that we abhor, as has happened all too often in the past. So today, after this overly long motivational introduction, I want to talk about a vision, or at least an aspect of it, at least for economics, that I personally advocate. This new vision is called Participatory Economics, or paricon for short. And participatory economics is built around five central values, by which I mean participatory economics is literally conceived and designed to fulfill those values that we hold dear. So what are they? The first value is, I think, uncontroversial. It is solidarity. Any economy inevitably impacts relations among people. What impacts do we want it to have? Surely not to make people antisocial and contrary to one another, not to cause people to have to ignore or violate each other's humanity to survive or prosper. The value we hold dear, instead, is solidarity. We want the economy to cause people to be concerned for one another, to look out for one another's well-being, to advance by virtue of collective benefit, and not by way of exploiting or ignoring the plight of others. So who would disagree? that other things being equal, an economy that produces more solidarity is better than one that produces less. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. And so we have our first value, solidarity. The second value is also uncontroversial, diversity. Economies affect the range of options that are available to us. We value having more options over having fewer options because of the choice that more diversity gives us, and because we can benefit vicariously from the experience of others who make diverse choices that we are unable to make, and because diversity ensures against our putting all our hopes on single scenarios without other possible avenues being explored and available if we need to change our path. So, who would disagree that other things equal, an economy that offers more diversity is better than one that offers less, and is far better than one that homogenizes outcomes and eliminates variety? I don't think anyone would disagree with that either, and certainly not anyone here at the WSF, and so we have our second value, diversity. The third value is more controversial, perhaps even among us. It is equity. Economies impact the distribution of income and wealth. What do we want an economy to do in this respect if we are to deem it worthy? How much should we all get? Various norms are possible. Remuneration could be for property, for example. If you have a deed in your pocket that says you own machines, equipment, land, and productive capital, you get to receive as income the profit that those means of production generate. But of course, we all reject that norm for remuneration on grounds that allowing an owner like Bill Gates to have more wealth than the entire population of Norway is not just immoral, it is vile, it is uncivilized, it is barbaric. Remuneration could instead be for power. You get what you can take. The more power you have, the more you get. But we reject that remunerative norm also this time on grounds that having a society built on the ethics of Genghis Khan or of the mafia or of the Harvard Business School is likewise immoral and barbaric. Third, remuneration could be for output, and this is much more subtle. Indeed, why wouldn't it be right to reward each participant with the amount that they, by their work, give to the economy? The answer is, It would be wrong, because the amount that Sally adds to the economic output of society depends in part on many factors that have no relation to Sally's choices or actions. It depends on how much society values Sally's product, on how productive her workmates and tools are, and and on her innate talents and capacities, over which Sally has no control and which she has simply been bequeathed. Milton Friedman, the right-wing noble economist, once confronted a bunch of leftists about their views. He said, you leftists reject that someone should, by virtue of being born to a capitalist parent, be born with a silver spoon, be born with huge advantages, be born rounding third base, heading for home, with no catcher there to tag him out, as compared to the working-class youth, born at bat, against an awesome pitcher, already with two strikes, and wearing a blindfold. But Friedman added, okay, but if we shouldn't benefit from the luck of being born to rich parents, why should we benefit from the luck of being born with good genes? Why should Mozart be paid more than Salieri? Why should Michael Jordan be paid more than a yeoman ball player? Friedman thought he had given a reductio ad absurdum argument against rejecting lucky conditions as a factor for remuneration. I think, instead, that Friedman's example wasn't absurd at all, and that the left ought to agree that there should be no remuneration benefits for property inheritance, but also no remuneration benefits for genetic inheritance. Finally, remuneration could be for effort. We reward people for the effort they expend and the hardship they endure at work. Two people go to the fields to cut sugarcane. Suppose they both work the same length of time, with the same conditions, and with the same effort. Should they get the same pay? Suppose one is much larger. Should we reward the larger person more income because at the end of the day her pile is larger than that of the smaller person? What if one has a better set of tools? Or what if one works in a cane field that is easier to cut or with more cane per area? Do such differences warrant one cutter receiving more income than the other? We want an economy to elicit more productive activity, to be sure. But to attain that end, we needn't reward people immorally, giving Billy more than Barbara because of size or innate talent or tools, though Billy and Barbara work the same length of time with the same effort and hardship. Two people create mathematics or art, or produce bicycles or jet engines. One is more creative, is quicker, has better tools, or is producing something more valued but they work at the same rate, in similar conditions, with the same effort. Should one get more pay than the other? I think Friedman, inadvertently, and despite thinking otherwise, was right. There is no moral reason to remunerate output, and there is also no economic reason. Higher pay can't get an individual to have better genes, nor is it the best way to elicit appropriate application of talents or tools. Rewarding effort provides an appropriate incentive to work hard. It gives us more if we exert more. And the morality is also right. We are rewarded for what we endure, what we do, not for luck or circumstance. And so we have a third value, equity. For our fourth values, economies also impact decision-making relations. I call the associated value that needs to be propelled by a good economy, self-management. The idea is simple. Imagine a worker, among many others, who wants to put a picture of her family in her workplace unit. Who should make that decision? She should, unilaterally. I think we can all agree. Suppose she instead wants to put a loud radio in her workstation, blaring forth music. Who should make that decision? Certainly not her alone. Her neighboring workmates should have a say. They would hear it too. I think we can all agree. And just that quickly, we have our norm. Economic actors should influence decisions in proportion as the decisions impact them. Sometimes a decision should be unilateral, even dictatorial. It isn't that the boss should decide dictatorially when I go to the bathroom, as now, but that I should decide that, myself. Other times, one person, one vote. Majority rule makes most sense. Or sometimes consensus makes most sense. Or other procedures. The specific methodology is not universal. It's contextual. But the goal we are trying to accomplish with our choice of voting procedures and modes of of deliberation is always self-management. We should impact decisions in proportion as we are affected by them. If we don't each have proportionate influence, then obviously someone has disproportionately more and someone else has disproportionately less. But there is no moral or pragmatic justification for that. It is morally right that we control our own lives. More, we are each most suited to do so. We are each the world's foremost expert on our own desires and aspirations. And so we have a fourth value, self-management. Our final value is one that all economists purport to share, efficiency, but with a clarification. To be efficient is to accomplish some desired goal without wasting resources, energy, effort, or other assets that we value. If the goal is profits and humans aren't valued, as in capitalism, then efficiency will mean using resources and other assets to generate profits regardless of the impact on humans. No matter that workers suffer industrial diseases, no matter that workers are worn to the bone, no matter that workers lack dignity in their labors, no matter that pollution clogs the populace's eyes and lungs, profits are maximized. It's efficient. For us, in contrast, efficiency is achieving democratically sought-after production and allocation while furthering the values that we hold dear. It is meeting and developing capacities without wasting or abusing things that we value, including, of course, ourselves. So now we have five values, solidarity, diversity, equity, self-management, and efficiency. And our task is to settle on a set of economic institutions that can accomplish production, consumption, and allocation consistently with advancing those five values. That's what it means, it seems to me, to try to answer the question, what do we want institutionally for the economy? We have values. We need institutions consistent with them. That was the presentation. But I should add now that I still think that that is quite correct. If we have values, and if we take them seriously, if existing institutions violate them, indeed literally trample them, then we have no choice. We must seek to conceive new institutions consistent with our values, and we must seek to implement them. Indeed, that is ultimately the agenda of the podcast Revolution Z, and its 135 prior episodes. Occasionally, they have considered existing relations or events or controversies. Mostly, though, they have focused on conceiving institutions consistent with the values mentioned this time and on talking about how to attain them. When I look at the spectrum of left attention, it seems to me that conceiving and sharing vision, conceiving and sharing strategy, and considering means of advancing each, of advancing experiences with each, or of entertaining proposals for each and furthering them While all getting more attention of late, I think, than for a long, long time, it still needs to get still more. A lot of cynicism, a lot of fatalism, gets in the way of that. It fragments us and hobbles us. As with the story of the computer repair guy mentioned earlier. I admit, I am very unsure how to best overcome that. Or, forget how to optimally do it, how to overcome it at all. How to engender militant and sustained hope and desire as compared to just engendering more understanding of how poverty, powerlessness, racism, and sexism hurt us. But I'm very sure it needs to happen. And so, that said, this is Michael Albert, signing off for Revolution Z. Until next time.